If you've got a Bible, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11 is where we're going to be. We're actually going back to that text. We were in it a couple of weeks ago. We're going to revisit it this week. And for those of you who've been with us for the last nine months, I just want to give you an assurance. We're going to be out of 1 Peter in three weeks. Okay? I promise. I promise. But 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, we're going to read down through verse 11 and come back to a a, a verse in this text uh, that we read through a couple of weeks ago. Uh, But Peter writes these words in 1 Peter 4, 7 to 11. He says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we took a look at verse 9 and talked about one of the features of a sojourner is the fact that they open their lives up to others in a way that is uncoerced. In other words, it's not forced upon them, but they freely open their lives up to other people because God has freely shown them hospitality in Christ. They show hospitality freely to others. There's so many other things in this text that we could drive at this morning as a church. We could talk about verse 8 and loving others and how that provides a blanket which overlooks many times the wounds that we receive from other people and the sins that are committed against us because we love them. We could talk about verses 10 and 11 and about how God calls us as sojourners not to flirt with the church but to marry her and a part of flirting and dating with the church is to see what you can get from her but a part of marrying her is to see what you're able to give to her. We could talk about that for a while this morning as well. But where we're going to camp this morning and what we want to drive at this morning is in verse 7 of this text. We want to look at what God has to say to us in verse 7 when he says, The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. See, one of the features of a sojourner, of someone who is living in this world, but they're waiting for the world that is to come. In other words, they're waiting for one day the clouds depart and Jesus to return and God to make all things new and to restore and heal everything. We're waiting for that day and we're citizens of that kingdom, but for now we live in this kingdom and we live in this land. And so one of, one of the features of a sojourner who's waiting for that day to come, who continues to look out toward the horizon, waiting for Christ to come back and heal and restore and make all things new, is the fact, he says, that they are sober-minded and to be self-controlled. Now that word sober-minded there is, 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 is a pretty vivid image that Peter uses. And when he talks about being sober-minded in the same way that it's possible to physically be intoxicated, and some of us are familiar with that experience, perhaps maybe not too far in our distance past, but some of us have, are familiar with the, 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 the experience of being physically intoxicated. It is also possible to be mentally, psychologically, or even spiritually intoxicated. 
And so Peter says you're to be sober-minded. In the same way that physical intoxication brings us under the control of an outside substance so we are no longer self-controlled, right? If you are intoxicated by something, if you have drank to the point of legal intoxication or if you've taken pills to the point to which you are legally intoxicated or your judgment becomes impaired, you're no longer self-controlled because you're being controlled by an outside substance. In the same way... Those who are, who are intoxicated spiritually, they're under the control of something or someone other than themselves. It diminishes the degree to which we're able to live self-controlled lives. And so that's why I think Peter pairs those two things together. He says, be sober-minded and self-controlled, right? Because what you're intoxicated by will ultimately determine what you, what you, what you do, how you conduct yourself, how you behave. And so whenever you think about physical intoxication, it diminishes your ability, some of you experienced this before as well, to process your surroundings, the things that are around you. It also diminishes your ability to accurately determine the condition of your own heart, of your own abilities. Let me say it to you this way. This is why whenever people are physically intoxicated, they overestimate their abilities and they underestimate their surroundings. This is why some people who are kind of at the end of those, those country roads out there, like take me home to the place where I belong, right? The, at the end of those country roads and there's, you know, a, a big group of high school or college students just kind of hanging out and they've got, you know, somebody's like, you know, seven in to a 12 pack at that point and they're like, they look around, they see something, they're like, man, I gotta do that. And so they're like, they look at their buddy and they're like, hey, hold my beer and watch this, Right? Because they're overestimating their abilities and they're underestimating their surroundings. And listen, that 99.9% of the time, that does not end well for them. Okay? It does not end well. And listen, the same is true whenever we become spiritually intoxicated. Is we overestimate our abilities and we underestimate our surroundings. We overestimate what we are capable of in and of ourselves and we underestimate what's going on around us. We lack a real self-awareness. We don't really know the condition of our own hearts. It's hard to see that whenever you become spiritually intoxicated and you're not sober-minded. You're under the control of something or someone else. Listen, that's the reality for us at living in this fallen world. We lose self-awareness and we lose awareness of the real needs that exist around us. We lose awareness of the real needs that we have in our own hearts and we lose awareness of the needs that other people have in our circles or around us. Now listen, many of us in the room this morning or some of us in the room this morning may have had that experience of being intoxicated by a substance. By a substance. But listen, I want to tell you something this morning because I think what Peter says to us here is that the things that are most intoxicating for us are not substances in our lives, but the things that are most intoxicating for us are saviors. Let me say that again. The things that are most intoxicating are not substances, but they are saviors. See, the Bible throughout its pages, from Genesis to Revelation, speaks of the great need of the human heart for God. 
But it also speaks of how God's people throughout history have turned away from him and they've sought to find significance. They've sought to find satisfaction. They've sought to find security. They've sought to find status in something or someone other than God. Our hearts were made from him and they will be restless until they rest in him, as St. Augustine said. And yet, many of our hearts are so restless because we're trying, they're trying to rest in something or someone other than God. See, the most intoxicating things in our lives are not substances, but they are saviors. They are false gods. The Bible calls them idols. And idols are incredibly intoxicating. They are incredibly intoxicating. They diminish our self-awareness. They diminish our awareness of the real needs that exist in our hearts and they diminish the, our, the awareness of the real needs that exist in the world around us. They're incredibly intoxicating because we think that in them we're going to find the satisfaction, security, and significance that our hearts are longing for. You go back into the Old Testament and what you see in the book of Jeremiah God's people had wandered from him and they had begun to seek for significant satisfaction and security in things outside of him. And they were intoxicated by the idols of the nations that surrounded them. They weren't sober-minded, they weren't self-controlled, their actions were being dictated by the gods of the other nations as opposed to the God of the Bible. And so what Jeremiah, God through Jeremiah levies an accusation against them. He says, my people, they've committed two Two sins or two wrongs. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, he says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can, listen to what he says, hold no water. These broken wells, these broken cisterns, that can, they've got a leak in them. There's a crack in them somewhere. And so the water continues to drip and the water continues to drain. And they can never drink enough from these cisterns. They can never drink enough from these wells to satisfy them. It's a very vivid image that Jeremiah uses in Jeremiah chapter 2 to describe these intoxicating idols. To describe these false gods. To describe these functional saviors that we look to for significant satisfaction and security. They're like broken cisterns. But the, 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 the crazy thing is that God's people then and us today, we continue to try and drink from these wells even though they don't hold water. Even though they can never fill us enough. Even though they always leave us thirsty, we keep going back to them. In the same way that God's people in Jeremiah turned away from God as their source of everlasting pleasure and joy and significance and satisfaction and security and turned to the gods of the other nations, so do we. Because they're incredibly intoxicating. And we find ourselves under their control. And so we find ourselves doing things in our lives, right? We're not self-controlled. Our behaviors, right? We, we begin to look at our conduct and our behaviors and we go, man, or other people might look at those things because we, we don't have enough self-awareness at the time. Other people look at those and go, man, that dude's wheels off. Or that chick is wheels off, right? Why? Because they're under the influence of an intoxicating idol. They're not sober-minded. They're not thinking clearly about the decisions that they're making, the actions that they're engaged in. 
And so this morning, what I'd like to do in our time together is to talk about what, what, this, what this looks like for us and one of the effects that it has on our lives, particularly our prayer life. That's the connection Peter makes in the text. So what does it look like to be intoxicated by idols in our day? Because when many of us think of idols or idolatry, we think of little statues that people have in their houses in Tibet, right? And they have mats down there and they're kind of, you know, they sit and cross-legged and they look at the idol and they like, like worship the statue. And we go, man, that's ridiculous. But listen, our idols are just as ridiculous. They're just as ridiculous and they're just as intoxicating and influential in our lives. Now this, listen, before we get to that, this, this is heart level work, okay? This is heart level work. And one of the things about heart level work is that at times it can be painful. You ever found that to be true? Heart level work, whenever things, it's not just surface level things in our lives, but heart level work at times can be painful because things get all tangled up in there and they get very tender. Listen, I, I've got a five-year-old daughter um, and Listen, I, my wife and I are not the model, okay, of, of my, my, my wife is, I'm not. I'm, I'm pretty lazy when it comes to, like, giving the kids baths and stuff like that. Man, if I can skip a night or two, like, I'm all about it, right? We're just going to put you in bed, wake up the next morning, you'd be good to go. Right, and so there are some nights where whenever it comes to bedtime, like we don't bathe our kids every night if they hadn't been out playing in the mud and doing all that kind of stuff. And so some nights when it comes to bedtime, though, we'll, I'll sit on the little ottoman there in front of the, uh, one of the chairs in our living room and I'll take out the, the brush, the hairbrush, and the detangler spray, all right, because uh, if, you, listen, you know where this is going, right? If you don't brush that stuff before they go to bed, when they wake up the next morning, if you've got a little girl, man, it's just like, psh, right and even when they do wake up in the morning it's still like that right? there's tangles everywhere and so sometimes I take the detangler spray and I just like saturate her whole head it looks like she just got out of the shower I put so much of the detangler spray on her right and then I take the brush and I begin to gently try and pull it through her hair but listen I'll, I'll, I'll say this no matter how gentle I am with her there are still times where it catches one of those tangles. And depending on her disposition at the time, right, how much sleep she got the night before, right, she can just freak out on us or she can just go, ow, that hurts. Why? Because anytime you begin to try and untangle that stuff, there's, there's some pain, there's some hurt that's involved. And the same is true whenever you begin to try and untangle some of the stuff in our hearts. Maybe to untangle some of the stuff in our hearts, but it's so important, and here's why. Here's why, church, because God is not only after, listen, He's not only after your actions, He's also after your affections. He's not only after your hands and what you do, but He's also after your hearts. And so it's so important that at times we stop and we try and untangle some of that. And I know it's tender. I know that it is. And sometimes pastoring is a lot like parenting. You try and be as gentle as you can be. And I've prayed for God's grace to do that this morning. But let's look at, let's look at some of those intoxicating idols in our lives that keep us from being sober-minded and self-controlled. Now, this material is not original to me. I've heard it in multiple places from multiple people, right? Um, every, every 
I wouldn't call myself a good preacher, but every preacher um, borrows material from someone at some point along their journey, right? The places that I've found most helpful for some of this stuff is a man by the name of Tim Keller in a book that he's written called Counterfeit Gods. If you've never read it, I highly encourage you, pick it up, give it a read. Um, also, most recently, Matt Chandler preached a sermon uh, on this issue as well uh, that I found some help with. Um, in, in addition to Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods. And so I don't want you to go, man, he's super insightful. I just want you to go, no, I, can, I, I have ears, I can listen, and I have eyes, I can read. And so I want to pass some of that information along to you this morning. Because when it comes to idols, of the, when it comes to idols, there's at least two different kinds. There's some surface idols, and there are source idols. There are surface idols and source idols. Surface idols are those idols that you can see on top of your life, and they tend to be those areas in our lives in which we feel the most pressure points. Those areas in our lives where we feel the most pressure or most pain points for us. Surface idols are those things that you can, you can, you can look in the mirror and you can be- begin to recognize those things very clearly. Or most often we see them in other people's lives, those who are closest to us, whether it be our spouses, our family, our closest friends. We can begin to see some of those things in their lives long before we see them in ours. Why? Because we don't have the self-awareness to see those things because we're intoxicated by them. But surface idols are those things on the surface that most people can see. Things like this. Some, of the, some examples of surface idols might be body image. Might be your body image. And you see, every idol, whether it be body image or another, every idol says you will not be happy, satisfied, significant, or secure unless you have this. And there are some of us in the room this morning who feel like we will not be satisfied, we will not be secure, and we will not be um, uh, uh, significant unless our body image looks a particular way. We have this image fabricated in our minds, and we think if, unless I look like that, then I will not be significant, I will not be secure, and I will not be satisfied. Listen, we took our kids to the pool for the first time yesterday afternoon. Uh, for an hour when the sun broke, right? And I remember being, I, I got out to the pool yesterday afternoon and I'm like standing there in my swim sh- trunks and, you know, I've got like a little bit of uh, redness here from fishing earlier this spring, but brother, everything outside of that, it's the, the color of this page right here, right? So I feel like a little bit like, I can't even, I don't, I don't even want to do this right now. We all feel that way to, 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 to some degree and at some points in time. And listen, it's not wrong to want to be healthy. It's not wrong to want to be fit. It's not wrong to want to exercise. It's a good things to care for this body, the only one that God has given you. But listen, whenever body image, whenever fitting in at the particular size of genes, right, or having particular measurements, right, becomes ultimate in your life, then you begin to begin very insecure when you look at other people. You compare yourself constantly to what they look like. You compare yourself constantly to uh, the, 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 the size that they are, the muscle tone that they have, the tan that they got, because they went to the self-tanning place, right? Like the spray tan, they got all like painted up. Begin to compare yourself and you begin to feel these feelings of insecurity begin to rise in your heart. Why? Because you're intoxicated by body image. When you constantly look in the mirror and you compare yourself to what other people look like. 
not wrong to be fit. It's not wrong to be healthy. It's not wrong to eat well. It's not wrong to exercise. But when those good things become ultimate things, they begin to consume our lives and we become intoxicated by them. There's a difference between being healthy and worshiping your own graven image at the gym. Right? Some of those dudes get in there and they're like working out, man. They're looking in the mirror. Right? What is that? Part of that is them worshiping their own graven image. It is not wrong to want to be well kept, but it is deadly to worship your own graven image at the salon. Ladies? It will destroy you. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he says it this way. He says, physical beauty is a pleasant thing. But if you deify it, if you make it the most important thing in a person's life or a culture's life, and man, do we ever swim in that water. The most important thing in the life of a culture, then you have Aphrodite. And what that was? The Greek goddess of beauty who was worshipped and venerated. You, 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 not just beauty, but Aphrodite, he says. You have people and an entire culture constantly agonizing over appearance, spending inordinate amounts of time and money on it, and foolishly evaluating character on the basis of it. There are some people who look just at the outward appearance alone, just like the Israelites did with Saul. But God says, listen, I'm, I, I can see past all the makeup, and I can see past all the biceps. I can see the heart. See, for some of us, body image is a surface idol in our lives. Others of us, it might be fantasy. It's a surface idol. Fantasy. It's the belief that my life will be, I will have, find satisfaction if I'm able to escape reality and live in my own little fantasy world. And there's two ways that this earth unearths itself and practice in our lives. One is in the area of pornography and the other is in the area of video games. One is inherently sinful, the other may not necessarily be. Okay, let me go ahead and just make that distinction. But whenever you look at pornography, listen, this is, and let me just say this, this is not only a, a guy's issue, this is also a lady's issue. Okay, one of the fastest growing demographics among which pornography has begun to erupt and explode are teenage girls and young women who are maturing into adulthood. But pornography is fantasy. The images are fake. The experiences are fake. They are actors on a screen performing. It is, it is not reality. And there are many people who are trying to escape reality of real relationships with real women and real men by immersing themselves and they think that their lives will only be satisfied if they can find an escape from reality in this fantasy world that someone has created for them and from which they are drinking deeply at this broken cistern, at this leaky well. Others of us, perhaps in the area of, of just entertainment and video games, you know, nearly 50% of Americans play at least three hours of games per week. Half of everybody in our culture. This, again, is not inherently sinful. But I want you to consider something. It's interesting that the average age of a game player is a 35-year-old man. <laughs> That's the average age. 
And listen, and here's, here's where the issue is with that. Here's where the rub is with that. Is it inherently sinful to play Xbox? No. But here's where the issue is. I wrote this down, so I'm going to read it to you. There are many men who are far too busy conquering fake lands, executing fake missions, and winning fake championships to, ca- to care for anyone else around them, to nurture real relationships with other people, or to even care and cultivate their own souls. Because they think, my life, I will be satisfied if I can escape reality and immerse myself in fantasy. So for some of us, that surface idol is fantasy. For other, There's one more. We don't have time. We could go on all day long. But you wouldn't want that. So the, the, the third surface idol is, is materialism. Is materialism. This is the belief that my life will have meaning, I will have value, and I will be significant and secure if I have certain possessions or live in a certain zip code. This is why some people are house poor. This is why some people, every last cent, they have leverage toward a home because they think that in the construction or remodeling of this particular place of residence that they're going to find their true joy. They're going to drink deeply from that well and it's going to satisfy. It's going to give them the significance and it's going to give them the security for which their hearts are longing. This is why some people are swimming in credit card debt. Now, this is why some people have hundreds of thousands of dollars of maxed out credit cards. Listen, the issue here is not just poor financial management. The issue here is worship. It's worship. That they're being intoxicated by an idol. They're not sober-minded and self-controlled. Their decisions, their actions, their behaviors are being driven by a false God, a functional Savior. The most intoxicating things are not substances, they are saviors. So you have surface idols like body image or fantasy or materialism. But you also have source idols. And listen, the source idols are those idols that are harder to see and they're under the surface and they are feeding and fueling many of the surface idols in your life. Source idols are things like comfort. They're things like comfort. This is the belief that my life will have meaning, I will have value, and I will have significance and security if I'm able to minimize every pressure point in my life and I'm able to live comfortably. So life only has meaning if I have a particular kind of pleasurable experience or a particular quality of life where there are no demands in my life, where stress is very minimal. In fact, those who have the idol of comfort, they want privacy, they want their, their greatest aim and their greatest pursuit in their life is a lack of stress. It's a lack of demands. It's a lack of expectations that anyone would have for them. And they're willing to pay for that. They're willing to pay for that lack of stress. They're willing to pay for those lack of demands with a lack of productivity in their lives. They're not really accomplishing anything not really pursuing anything. They're just kind of coasting along in life. And listen, underneath, here's what I think. Underneath the idol of, surface idol of fantasy is this idol of comfort. Is this idol of comfort. See, they're great, the, those who have the idol of comfort, their greatest nightmare is stress and demands. And others in their life, the people around them, they often feel hurt by them because laziness 
I heard, heard Matt Chandler say this in a sermon a couple of weeks ago. Laziness always has collateral damage. When somebody just wants to push back away from the table, say, I don't, I don't want stress, I don't want demands, I don't want expectations. And so they have a very hard time nurturing any real relationships. And they often hurt people who are around them because of their laziness. And that always inflicts wounds that always has collateral damage, that they may have never intended to inflict. They oftentimes see others as obstacles to their comfort because authentic relationships, if you ever notice this, they take work. <laughs> they do involve stress. At times they require hard conversations. But those with the idol of comfort, they don't want any of that. And so they're, they're, all their relationships are like an inch deep. They're like an inch deep. They're like the, hey, how you doing kind of relationships when you pass somebody in the hall and they just kind of keep going. They never expose any of their heart. They never open up about any of their desires or dreams. They never share anything about their greatest struggles. Why? Because that would be uncomfortable for them. It's the idol, the, the, the source idol of comfort. That may be right where some of you are. Second source idol, the source idol of approval this is the belief that my life will have meaning, I will have value, I will be significant and secure if, if I'm loved and respected by a particular person or a particular group of people. Listen, let me just go ahead and get real vulnerable with you this morning. Those of you who were raised in an environment or who grew up as a child that was constantly excluded, right? Like I was a dude that was always picked last for the football team. Right, flag football, I was always a dude, like at the end of the bench, they were like, yeah, I guess we got to include you. Right, come on. Right, those who got picked on, those who were bullied, those who had poor, who had, who had hurtful experiences in relationships with other people. Listen, this is often, this is often their source idol that drives so much of their behavior. And so many of their decisions are based upon seeking affirmation and inclusion in certain circles or relationships. This is why people with the idol of approval, they never have an opinion of their own. Why? Because those people might reject them if they have an opinion of their own. They never speak truth. Why? Because they might be rejected if they speak truth. They never wade into the hard conversations. Why? Because I just want to be affirmed. I want to be included. I want to be welcomed. I want to be received. I don't want to experience that any longer. Of being excluded. I want to be included. And so people with the idol of approval, your greatest nightmare is rejection. greatest nightmare is rejection and so some of us are leveraging our body image to get approval from other see how this works these surface idols are they always come from somewhere under the surface some of us our body image is our means to acceptance with other people if I look like them if I dress like them if I act like them if I talk like them then I'll be included in this crowd and they'll receive me if I never go against any of their opinions then they'll receive me if I never have an opinion of my own or formulate a thought for myself, then I'll be included and, and invited to all the dinners and invited on vacations and all those kinds of things. And there won't be any friction in my relationships and I'll be approved of. There's so many of us, so many people who are so desperate for approval. And we're so desperate for approval at times that what we end up doing is not hurting people because of our laziness like those with the idol of comfort, but we end up smothering people because we're so needy. 
We need other people so much. We need their approval. We need their affirmation. We need their acceptance. So desperately we wind up smothering them. So you got a source idol of comfort. You got a source idol of approval. But you also, a third one, it's a source idol of control. It's a source out of control. This is the belief that my life will have meaning. I will have value. I will have significance and security if I'm able to manipulate persons and situations in ways that will always give me an advantage and will place me in the driver's seat so that I am the one pulling the strings. I am the one in control. Listen, those with the source out of control, they're constantly seeking to control themselves and others through self-discipline and rigid boundaries and standards. Listen, there's nothing wrong with self-discipline, right? There's nothing. That's a good quality. But whenever you make it ultimate, and you begin to try and control all the circumstances in your life through that, and in other people's lives through that, and so what people with the source idol of control end up saying is things like, why can't you just... Right? Why can't they just... People with the source idol of control, they end up micromanaging every area of their life and trying to micromanage every area of other people's lives as well. And they have this nagging feeling that if they want something done right, they have to what? Do it themselves. They can't entrust it to anyone else because they've got control issues. To source idol under the surface. Their greatest nightmare is uncertainty and the price they pay for this idol, listen, is loneliness. Because they keep driving people away in their relational spheres. They keep pushing them out. Because they won't just. <laughs> so you got surface idols and you got source idols. And so, see, our problem isn't just some bad habits that we have, our problem is that we're worshiping false gods. The most intoxicating things in our lives are not substances, they are saviors whom we believe will provide for us the security, satisfaction, and significance that our hearts are desperate for. And so we end up drinking deeply from all of these broken wells. All of these broken wells. So one of the ways to know that you're drinking deeply from one of these wells, let me give you a couple of ways to a couple of questions to consider this week. First, consider, you, you, you got to look at your time, you got to look at your treasure, and you got to look at your thoughts. Right? Just like any alcoholic or any addict who's intoxicated by something, not sober-minded, thinking clearly and self-controlled, just like any addict or alcoholic, you give them the choice between productive living in reality or medicating yourself with fantasy, what do you choose? You choose to medicate yourself, don't you, by spending inordinate amounts of time at the well from which you are deeply drinking. Look at where your time is going. Where's your time going? Like for some of us, we spend more time on phones than we do interfacing with people. Why? Because we can keep those people on the phone at a distance while those people who are under our roof are right there. They're right there. We spend more time staring at a screen than we do looking into the eyes of a person having conversation. Because we have maybe have a source idol of comfort. 
which is erupted in fantasy on the surface. Do you realize that most people on social media, that's fantasy. (laughs) You get one glimpse of one moment at one time, but you don't see all the other stuff that just melted down the second after they took that picture or the second before they took that picture. But it's so easy to stare in front of it, stare into that screen, then into the eyes of another person. Look at where your time is going. Where are you investing in inordinate in amounts of time? Second of all, look at your treasure. Just like any alcoholic or addict, you're given the choice between spending your last dollar on food or another fix, you will channel an inordinate amount of financial resources toward the well from which you are deeply drinking. For some of us, it might be our hobbies, because that idol of comfort's underneath, so propping up our hobbies. So we invest all kinds of financial resources into all of our toys. Because we're like, man, we're just standing under that well, waiting for that water to drip because we're so thirsty. So we invest all kinds of money into our, into our toys, or we invest all kinds of money into our skincare products and the trips to the spray tan place and the trips to the salon and having my hair did every month, right? Where it gets cut and primped and colored and I don't know what else you ladies do to that stuff, but whatever else they do there at the salon, right? And you're just standing under that well going, please, I'm so thirsty, waiting for that water to drip out of that broken cistern. Where is your, where's your money going? And finally, your thoughts. See, just like any alcoholic who spends all day thinking about where they will get their next drink, what are you daydreaming about? What are you daydreaming about? Do you daydream about that well from which you're drinking? See, some of you who are perhaps addicted to fantasy and pornography, right? Whenever you're actually sitting down across the table from somebody, where your mind is going, is like, man, I, I, it's a real person. I don't even know what to do with them. I can't wait till I get back to my room with my phone so I can open up this webpage and begin to stare at all these pictures and watch all these videos. Right? Because your mind, in that un- particularly in that unoccupied time and space, is, that's where it's going. That's where it's going. Look at your time, look at your treasure, look at your thoughts. Where are those things being constantly, continually, inordinately channeled? And you begin to identify some of the surface and source idols in your life. Now I want to close with this. I want to ask this question. I'm going to come back to the text. I'm going to ask this question. How does this how does, how does this intoxication with idolatry affect our prayer life? Because that's what Peter seems to say. He says, be sober-minded so that you be self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. What's the connection between sober-mindedness, between not being intoxicated by idolatry from false functional saviors, what's the connection between that and your prayer life? And here's, here, I've been thinking about this all week, and here's what I think it is. Here's what I think it is. See, what you're intoxicated by, what you're drinking deeply from, will determine whether you pray and for what you will pray.
It will determine whether you pray and for what you will pray. See, some of your idols, some of our idols, we don't need God to get them. We can circumvent God to get those things. And we're, and we're out of touch with the real, uh, real self-awareness about the condition of our hearts because we're, we're, we're overestimating our abilities and underestimating our surroundings. We don't see what's going on in us. We don't begin to pick up on the patterns of life, behavior in our lives around us. And so we don't need God, so we don't go to Him. But there's also another kind of idolatry in our lives that keeps us from praying. And that would be religious idolatry. See, some of us don't have a a conception of the true God. We have a conception of a false God that's been given to us through religion that we've been a part of all of our lives. And what we think is, is that if we obey, then God accepts us. God is pleased with us, so now we can come to Him. But see, some of us, and I found myself on this flywheel, on this hamster wheel before my own life, the reason we don't pray is because we don't pray. And what I mean by that is this. The reason you don't pray is because you feel guilt and shame over not praying. You don't think God wants to hear from you because you haven't prayed, and so you don't pray. Because you have this very religious notion of of what worship is. That if I check off all these boxes, God's pleased with me and accepts me, so I come to Him. Some of us, the barrier that keeps us from praying is our own guilt and shame over not praying. See, it has a profound effect on our prayer life. It determines whether we will pray, but it also determines what we will pray for. What we will pray for. See, some of us, when you begin to look at your prayer life, when you get, if, if you keep a prayer journal, if you write those things down, or if you write down requests, or if you begin to listen to yourself as you ask for prayer from other people in your life group, as you sit there at the end of your session, as you've talked about the Bible together, and as you begin to ask for prayer from them, begin to listen for the repeated patterns in what you're requesting prayer for. Do you keep asking for prayer, not for the condition of your heart, but for the cul-de-sac for your house? Right? If, if that's where your, 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 your thoughts and your energies are continue to be directed, that's what you keep praying for, there's a good chance that perhaps maybe you have an idol of materialism. If there's no self-awareness about the condition of your heart, but you keep pressing for material possessions, or you keep asking about, you know, prayer for, you know, or, or all you're willing to do is open up about your grandmother's ingrown toenail. Like, man, pray for her. I know it hurts. And maybe you have a subterranean idol or source idol of comfort and you're not willing to expose the real condition of your heart and say, I need God, not just in a song. It determines whether you pray and what you pray. See, as you begin to untangle some of this stuff in your life, listen, I don't, I don't want to just say, go, go out and untangle it. Here's what I want to say to you. I want to say that I will make myself accessible and available to meet you anytime, any place that we need to meet to sit down with you. I'm not saying I've got all this figured out. <laughs> because I see these things in my own life when I look in the mirror. 
But what I what want to say to you is I'm willing to sit down with you, and I know our other elders are willing to sit down with you and begin to think with you and pray with you about untangling some of these surface idols and these source idols in your life. So that you get down on your knees and you carve out time every day and you say no to fantasy and you say yes to reality in prayer. You come before God and you begin to pray in circles, right? You begin to pray for those who are closest to you. You begin to pray and, and outward from there and extending that prayer life out to those who are at the utter ends of the world that you have never met. And praying for people in India where churches are being planted. And you're praying for the condition of your own heart. You're praying for the condition of the heart of your spouse, of your kids, of your mothers and fathers. And you're getting on your knees and you're praying for these things and not just that God would prop up your surface idols or your source idols. Kevin talked last week about shepherding and shepherding well. Listen, helping you move towards sober-mindedness is a part of our job. And I'll say even more than that, helping you move towards sober-mindedness, and you helping me move towards sober-mindedness is woven into my heart. It's not just a job description. See, I want to I help you move. I want to help you move that direction. I want to be able to look across the table from you and say, you know what? I'm a fellow sojourner just like you. And there are times where I struggle with approval from people. There are times where I struggle with control. Ask my wife. There are times that I struggle <laughs> with comfort. There are times that I'm lazy, lonely, and demanding. you pray for me and I want to pray for you and we're going to keep looking to this Jesus this Jesus who the author of Hebrews says is the author and finisher of our faith in other words he's done everything that you need everything that you need so get on your knees before him and say I need you because you know what the author of Hebrews also says in chapter 7 that he's on his knees for you. That he lives, he lives to make intercession for you. We're going to sing together this morning as we close this service. I want to invite you to do that. As the band comes, I want to lead us in prayer. And may God begin to un 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 uncover and uproot some of those surface and source idols in all of our lives. There might be a sober-mindedness for the sake of our prayers. Let's pray. Father, we come today thanking you for your grace and goodness. And we do confess that apart from you, as John says, that we are just branches on the vine, and apart from you we can do nothing. Father, I pray that you would give clarity in our lives to whether or not we are intoxicated by false saviors, functional gods, things that have captured our mind's attention, things that have captured our heart's affection. 
And God, may you begin to untangle some of those things in our lives, even as painful as it is, because at times we feel like we're letting, a part of, letting go a part of who, what makes us who we are, what is central to who we are. But God, may we see that the only thing that will bring the significant security and satisfaction that our hearts deeply long for is a relationship with you through your Son and by your Spirit. To know that even in our idolatry, Jesus is on his knees to make intercession for us. So Father, in these moments, may we pray together, may we sing together, may we rejoice in truth together. And may you begin to free us from bondage. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.